Well, good morning, church family, and uh, light is the word for today as we continue in our series over the New Testament book of Ephesians. Uh, we're going to be taking a look at uh, this theme of light, and if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to be uh, studying verses 3 through 14, and I have uh, printed the English Standard Version in your outlines as you uh, came in this morning. I want to read from the English Standard Version, and the reason why is because uh, of this of this phrase that we're going to read, you are light in the Lord, walk as children of light. Walk. That's the title of this series that we're in as we study the back half uh, of Ephesians, Ephesians 4 through 6. Last week we talked about walking in love, and this week we're going to see uh, uh, what it means to walk as children of light. And so... Um, uh, that is the word walk that Paul says. It's a, it's, it means to get from point A to point B. I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, but uh, that's why I'm using this particular version. The NIV is a great translation, and it uses the word live and more or less translates that word. But I want us to pay attention to Ephesians 5, 3 through 14. Uh, those verses in the English Standard Version are uh, on your outlines. It's on your smartphones, and, <laughs> and it's also up on the screen, okay? So anyway, but you can read your smartphone, but just make sure the sound's off on that thing, okay? All right. <clears throat> but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, Do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. I want us to read that last Uh, sentence out loud together. One, two, three. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. One more time. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is God's word. Hmm. A couple of years ago, uh, Sarah and I, on our trip to Turkey, uh, went to the capital city of Ankara, And we were guests of just some wonderful friends who had studied here at the U of I uh, about 10 years ago. 
And so one afternoon, I went out running errands with my friend, Najette. And so we were out taking a walk. It was a beautiful day. And I turned the corner, and I saw this monument. And I said to Najette, what in the world is that? He said, well, it's a monument. I said, well, uh, to whom? He said, well, the Roman emperor, uh, Julian. I said, really? I said, well, you know, is that, uh, did, like, the city fathers finally recognize him? I mean, you know, a uh, hundred years ago or something like that? He said, he giggled. He said, no. <laughs> they recognized him in the year A.D. 362. That monument goes back to the year A.D. 362. I said, shut up. I said, <laughs> I didn't say that. Uh, but uh, I said, Really? He said, and so we walked up to the base of that um, and saw this plaque. This monument was built on 362. That's their version of A.D. Uh, uh, on behalf of the Roman emperor Julianus's visit to Ankara. So the Roman emperor came, visited. They built this incredible monument to me. You know, and, and so it kind of puts things in perspective, right? Because when he was here studying. I said, oh, you got to go to Springfield. You got to see Abraham Lincoln's home. I mean, it's got to be 160 years old. I mean, he's just going, he giggled. <laughs> uh, Julian was an interesting emperor. Uh, he was actually educated in Christianity. He rejected Christianity and, because he was Roman. That's who he was. He was Roman. And he, uh, he was really concerned about the state of the ancient Roman religion. And it had kind of just fallen on the wayside uh, because of the emergence and really almost the feeling of the takeover by what he called the impious Galileans, the Christians. Christianity, according to Rodney Stark, uh, who's a sociologist, flourished in the first three centuries across the empire to the point of 40% growth per decade for 300 years. And uh, by the time uh, Julian assumed the throne, Christianity was beginning to really influence culture, and he wanted to push back on this, uh, because you see, uh, the, the, I mean, uh, when you think about it, I mean, what do we have in terms of uh, feeding ourselves spiritually? Well, we've got the internet, we've got bookstores, we've got uh, all sorts of different Bible studies. What did they have? I'll tell you what they had. When a city in the summer would uh, have sweltering heat and a plague would come in and begin uh, decimating the population, uh, the elite and the rich and the wealthy would leave town and go out to the countryside to their manors until the plague swept over and then they would return, okay? Okay? The Christians stayed in the city and they took care of the sick, even to the point of being infected and dying themselves. But because they cared for the sick, the, uh, uh, the, the fatalities dropped 66%. 
10%. And what did those who were healed do then? Oh, they, they, they joined the church. They had been attracted by the selflessness of these believers and Julian saw this and said, we've got to push back on this. So, so in fact, this is what he wrote uh, in one of his letters. He was just bemoaning Christianity's growth. He said, the impious Galileans, that's what he called them, the impious Galileans support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. So he says, he knew when we are getting, we need to do better. So, he, so you know what he said to his priests? Pulled him in, he said, work harder, love. (laughs) Now get out of here. And you know what they did? They did just about what you did. They just kind of, they just kind of like, is he okay? What's that? They had no, like, why would we want to do that? Why would we want to do that? And well, why would we want to do that? You see, the Christians, they served another emperor whose name wasn't Julius or Julian. This emperor was the one of whom the Apostle Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 1, God had raised this Christ from the dead Chapter 1, verse 20, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, including the emperor Julian. And not only in this age, but the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him head over all things to the church, which is his body. Our emperor is intimately connected to his people, his body. Julian just wanted to, 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 to issue an edict and, and then just be, go on and, and get out of here. But our emperor actually suffered and died for us. And our emperor said, You are light. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hid. So let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's what our emperor said. And so it's no surprise for us to read these words in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. Words that came not in the year 362 A.D., but A.D. 62, where the Apostle Paul would say to the believers in Ephesus, before Christianity had swept the empire, Paul would say, but now you are light in the Lord. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. But now... Now, right now, the past is the past. Doesn't matter. What matters is but now. The past doesn't matter your past life. It doesn't matter what happened in your past marriage. It doesn't matter what happened in in your past decisions and relationships. It doesn't matter. What matters is but now. But now. That's what matters. 
And so Paul's big idea in these verses, the main lesson for Christians then, and really the main lesson for us today, is just this sentence, you are light in the Lord, but now you are light in the Lord. And because you are light in the Lord, now walk as children of light. And I want us to just pay attention to that big idea this morning. Our entire Scripture reading really just orbits around this verse here. And what I want to do is I just want to, first of all, I want to talk about that phrase, because you are light in the Lord. What, what does that mean? Let's talk about that. And then when we hear Paul say, walk as children of light, I want us to answer the question, what does that look like? All right? Two questions. What's it mean? And what's it look like? Let's get to work. Well, because you are light in the Lord, what does that mean? Well, it means this. It means to be light in the Lord is to know who your king is. It's to know know your homeland. It's to know your primary loyalty. It's to know who my family is. You see these words in Ephesians 3 through 14, words like inheritance and sonship. Do you know what tribe you belong to? The tribe of light or the tribe of darkness? And children of light know that they are light in the Lord. To know and to trust and to rest on the objective truth that we have been rescued and redeemed and adopted and transferred out of the kingdom of darkness solely because Christ loved us. Now, You know, we hear the phrase, God loves you, or you might go down uh, Main Street here in Champaign or in Urbana, you'd you'd say, do you know God loves you? And people would say, okay, you know, I mean, we've had enough of a history of uh, Judeo-Christian heritage that people can connect somewhat with that, but I'm telling you, if you walk down Curitas Street in first century Ephesus, and you said to a, 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 to a, a, a Roman Ephesian, you know God loves you, they'd look at you like, what? Why would he want that? There's no, they wouldn't, there would be no connection whatsoever at all with that, because in their faith heritage, it, God didn't love you. Just God was kind of at that temple, and as long as you brought your sacrifices and appeased Him, then then, then, then okay, whatever with the other idols. That will that kind of pantheon of 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 uh, idol gods and goddesses who kind of had their own little world. As long as you just kind of you know threw a piece of meat on the altar there, and you can go and do whatever you want to. There's no no connection to the idea of a personal transcendent God who loved creation. Furthermore, if you, if you walk down the street and say, now, now God wants me to love you, they, they would go, what? Why would I do that? Why would I show love to someone else? Oh, and especially a stranger. Why would I want, I could imagine doing that to my son or my child to continue the family line, but this notion of loving one another. Listen, mercy and pity in first century Rome, those were the kind, those were virtues to be purged. <laughs> but here these Christians came. They says, hey, there is a God who showed up in flesh and he loved and he sacrificed himself. And he was raised from death. And you are light in him. In him. You see, you don't, Christianity does not teach that you walk your way into becoming a child of God. No. 
God rescues you, he adopts you, you, he declares you his child, and then we learn what it looks like to walk as a child of God, you see. Otherwise, you'd be making yourself a Christian, and that's, that's not Christianity. And some of you may be sitting here thinking, Randy, didn't I hear this last week, and the week before that, and the week before that, and yes, you did. You might hear it next week, too. Okay? Why? Because that's what the Apostle Paul is drilling in to the minds and the hearts of these Ephesians here. I mean, that's why chapters 1 through 3 begin with, here's who you are, and then that's why 4 through 6 conclude with, here is how God wants you to live in the reality of who it is you are. That's why Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 says that uh, God has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing uh, in Christ Jesus as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Here's who you are. To do what? So that we should be holy and blameless before him. Here's who you are, and it's to this end that you might be holy and blameless. It, it always, always begins with here's who you are in Christ. Now here's how I want you to live based on who you are. I think the reason why this gets repeated over and over in Scripture is because we are so forgetful. Kara uh, Powell is the director of the Fuller Youth Institute. And she uh, did a, quite an extensive research project on college juniors uh, who were churched. And when I mean churched, I mean uh, churched in the kind of programming that, that we do, all right? Student service and missions trips and discipleship groups, et cetera, et cetera. And in this research project, she asked these college juniors uh, this question. Will you please describe what Christianity means to you? And these are the most active uh, college juniors who were steeped in their church experience in the way that I've described with you. A full third of them, one out of three, described what Christianity meant to them without even mentioning the name Jesus. Instead, their answers were steeped in behaviors. Behaviors. So, so clearly they had gotten the impression somehow that the gospel is primarily about behavior. And oh my goodness, you see, the, the problem with that is that when we fail to live up to those behaviors when those college juniors fail to live up to, to those behaviors, then they run from the very relationships where they should be. I'm speaking of a relationship with God and the relationship with the church family. And then, you know, I'm reading about this research and I'm thinking to myself, where did those students get that? Where did they get that? And And if they didn't get it from the pastor or the pastoral staff, maybe they got it from their parents. That's why we're going over this. But now you are children of light. Get it? <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah. You are. You are. You are light in the Lord, Paul says. Now, 
Walk as children of light. What's that look like? Well, well, on our outline, I want us to see three implications and three uh, results of what walking as children of light look like. And the first is this. To walk as children of light is to know the difference between darkness and light. Okay? You see, there's only two choices here, right? It's either darkness or light. You are either light or that which is lit. I mean, you, you know, there's you and there's them. And never mistake the two. There's no gray shade here. It's either light or darkness. No moderation. Lights on, lights off. No dimmer switch. None of that. In his letter from Birmingham jail, Martin Luther King Jr., in, um, in peaceful and reasonable terms, as he put it, uh, he really confronted the white moderate pastors who were just really waffling on civil rights. This is what he said. Martin Luther King said, shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. So it's either light or darkness. There's no middle ground, Paul says. And and the most important thing that the Apostle Paul says about darkness is right back at verse 8. I mean, he he lists these character traits at the beginning, uh, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness. We'll talk about that in a moment. But the most important thing he says is in verse 8. For at one time, you were darkness. You were darkness. In other words, the Apostle Paul is saying darkness is not just something we do, but it's it's who we were before Christ. And uh, the name of a gentleman and his life story really spoke to me about this biblical truth. Um, anybody here heard of the name Yehiel Denur? Yehiel Denur. Well, how about Adolf Eichmann? That may be a little more familiar. Adolf Eichmann was one of the uh, masterminds of the final solution in Nazi Germany, World War II. He was one of the masterminds of the Holocaust. And uh, he actually escaped uh, and uh, fled to Argentina. And he uh, did not participate in the Nuremberg trials. He was later captured by Israel. And somewhere around 6061, he was captured and brought to trial. And when he stood trial, the prosecutors brought in a string of witnesses, former concentration camp prisoners to serve as witnesses. And uh, Yehiel Dunur was one of those witnesses called to testify against Adolf Eichmann. And when uh, Yehiel Dunur came into the courtroom uh, and looked at Adolf Eichmann in the eyes, he just uh, collapsed and, as you see, had to be uh, helped and uh, sobbed. And um, you know, people just assumed why he, you know, he saw the eyes of his tormentor, this monster, and was just overwhelmed by emotion. And um, he was asked about it in an interview. Why 
why were you so emotionally distraught? And Yehiel Denur said, it had nothing to do with the things that, what you would, might think. He came into that room, and he had indeed expected Adolf Eichmann to be this sort of monster, this demonic personification of evil. But when he walked in the courtroom and locked eyes with Eichmann, you know what he saw? An ordinary man, just an ordinary man, just like anybody else. And in that one instant, Denur came to the stunning realization that sin and evil are the human condition. Denur said, I collapsed because I was afraid about myself. I saw that I'm capable to do this exactly like he. And Denur's shocking conclusion, Eichmann is in all of us. Well, that's what Paul is saying here. You were darkness. And so, you know, when we read about these dark deeds, it comes from a nature of darkness. And notice the Apostle Paul talks about um, two specific deeds. There's six words, six descriptive words here really uh, uh, um, identify two of these deeds of darkness, immoral sex and materialism. Things haven't changed much in 2,000 years, have they? And, you know, it's interesting. Some churches, so, you know, you'll hear it taught that, well, what the Bible has to say about uh, sex is really obsolete. But issues about greed and materialism, we need to pay attention to that. And then you'll have other churches that'll really pour it on in terms of sexual immorality, but then kind of turn a blind eye to social justice and greed and materialism. Well, the Scripture speaks to both. The Scripture says there's plenty of foolish talk and filthiness that surrounds both sexual immorality and covetous materialism. And so, you know, we need to agree with what Tom Wright says when he wrote, don't be fooled by the empty words and crude jokes and foolish talk about sexual intimacy. Because sex is good and uh, important and, and because it's the means of tenderness and intimacy between husband and wife and because it allows us to share in the likeness of God as we share in the creation of new life and because it is a blessing, we must avoid cheap imitation. Wright says, casual sex is a parody of the real thing. It's like drinking muddy water instead of fresh, clean water. When two people make love, their bodies are saying, we belong to each other totally and completely for life. And if that isn't true and not known by both to be true, if it's just an experiment or a nice idea at the time or a trial arrangement, their bodies are telling a lie. And sooner or later, the lie is going to come out. And we also need to pay attention to this. And it's this phrase here that Paul says. It's uh, unique to the Apostle Paul there in uh, verse 5. He says, who is covetous, that is an idolater. You know what that means? That means you don't have to go to the, 
You, see, you, know, you don't have to go to the temple of Artemis to commit the sin of idolatry. You can do it right smack dab in your heart because coveting and greed, what is coveting? Coveting is the lust and desire to acquire more and more and more and to keep for yourself more stuff and material things and to find your significance in an identity in the created things, be it money or possessions, when God is to be my primary source of identity. See, see, the sin of coveting is an attack and, on God, and that's why idolatry comes in. Because idolatry is, is an assault on God's exclusive right to our worship. No one else has the right to our worship other than our creator, God. And, and idolatry attacks that. It attacks God's exclusive rights to our love and devotion, our trust and confidence, our service and obedience. And so when you see these deeds, know that they come from a nature of darkness. And Paul says, that's what you were. That's what you were. But now, you're light. Your light. And you know the difference, don't you? Don't we? Well, children of light not only know the difference, but children of light are grateful for the difference. Grateful for the difference. Isn't it interesting that, you know, after Paul in verses three and four lists these six descriptors, he just kind of count, he kind of counterbalances, not even counterbalances, he goes all the way on the other side, but he says, all of these are replaced by what? He doesn't list six descriptors of positive things, he just lists one attribute thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. John Piper wrote, thanksgiving is what you feel when you believe that God is for you and not against you. Thanksgiving is what you feel when you believe that he gives you only what is good for you and he withholds no good thing. Thanksgiving is what you feel when you trust him and when you know that the tragedies of your life, God puts you through whatever hard seasons he does through your life for the sole purpose of shaping you and molding you so that you can be a fierce man or woman of God. And, and thanksgiving is what you feel when you know that you have a heavenly father who is more interested in your holiness than your happiness. And that's why thanksgiving gets repeated. Clear down in verse 20. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and just glancing at these verses, do you know what the most obvious sign of a grateful person is? They sing a lot, right? Isn't that what, that's what we're going to see next week? Addressing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So stick those earbuds in, crank up the iPad and sing and make music to the Lord because you're grateful for what he's done. Children of the light, they know the difference. They uh, are grateful for the difference. And then, and oh, we're getting into the juice of this passage here. Children of light, they make a difference. They make a difference. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. That's 11 through 13 here. 
but instead expose them, for it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Now what you have to understand is that the Apostle Paul, you know, so on Friday you'll get Randy's Friday email, right? Delivered right into your screen. Well, that's not how they received this letter. They received this as a community. This was read as a community. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, listen, all of you collectively are a light. And so you need to, you know, you need to, you need to turn on the light so that you can expose maybe the immature or dark crevices that exist among you all. So that together we can blaze brightly for Christ. So this is a, a community here. And so when you've got a brother or a sister in Christ who loves you enough to want to have a sit down and talk with you about how, you know, your light and their light, how they can burn brightly together, you're not going to be, get offended and say, well, who are you to talk about that? Well, I'm your brother in Christ. That's who I am. God is our Father, and we're in the same community in the kingdom. And what you do affects me and vice versa, you see. And that's what Paul's getting at here. He says, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That's together. Together we need to discern what's pleasing to the Lord. And together we need to expose anything that could be considered darkness. Make it visible. Eugene Peterson, uh, you have, some of you have the Bible called The Message, and it's a paraphrase, and Eugene Peterson's the author of that paraphrase, and he's a pastor, he's kind of a, uh, he's a retired pastor now, he's kind of a pastor's pastor, and he's written an excellent devotional commentary on Ephesians called Practice Resurrection, and in that book, he tells about kind of a, uh, you know, a, a an enlightening experience that he had with someone in his church, helping her and helping the church burn brightly for Christ. This gal in her 20s had been coming to the church, had been invited by friends, and uh, had never come from a church uh, background at all. This was, this was totally fresh. And this person was just like, this was like a real-life pagan, and, it was good. It was good. Came and just was absorbed by the gospel. Gave her life to Christ. Presented herself for baptism. And then um, Peterson would meet with her about once a month for just mentoring and answer questions that she had about the faith. And Peterson said, But something puzzled me about this young lady. He said, she lived with her boyfriend. And she always lived with her boyfriends. But she wouldn't have a boyfriend any longer than six months. And Peterson thought to himself, surely, I mean, she is going to kind of get a hint or something that in the community of the church and the study of the Bible that, that being light in Christ would inform how she would walk as a child of the light and that would have implications in terms of you know, her um, um, sexual life. And so, but he thought, well, you know, should I say something? She didn't say something, you know, and so 
Well, one meeting, they were visiting, and Eugene Peterson said, on an impulse, he said, you know, so-and-so, we've been meeting for seven months, haven't we? She said, yeah. He said, I'd like to ask you a favor. Sure, what is it? Eugene Peterson said, live celibate for six months. And she said, why would I do that? And he said, because I ask you, trust me, I think it's important. And she said, okay. Well, they met the next month, and she didn't say anything, and he didn't say anything. And well, then the next month after that, they met again. And she said, I want to talk to you about something. He said, yeah. She said, two months ago, you asked me to live celibate for six months. I said, yeah. She said, I didn't know what you were up to. You said, trust me. And so I said, well, all right, I trust you. And uh, she said, by the way, at the end of the first week, my boyfriend moved out. She said, but this has gone on for two months now. And I think I know what you're up to. She said, I've never felt cleaner. I've never felt freer. And then she said this, my relationships. Oh, my goodness. I mean, I thought, I thought everybody did that. I thought that was just the American way. She said, but my relationships, and I love the word she used, my relationships with people are so much more uncluttered. I want to thank you. And you know, I told you months ago that I could never see myself get married. She looked at Eugene Peterson and she said, I think I would like to get married someday. And two years later, after she had uh, walked the celibate path, God put someone in her life, and Eugene Peterson had the privilege of officiating over her wedding. Now, that's what we're talking about here. Someone who lovingly and in a way that is uh, true and right and good said, you know, there's a better way. There's a better way that'll, that'll allow you and then us to burn more brightly for the glory of God. I want to I belong to a church that's committed to that way, don't you? You see, you see, Paul says in verse 14, for anything that becomes visible is light. And then, and we said this out loud earlier, Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. You know what that verse is? That's a hymn. That's a hymn that the early Christians sang. There in those house churches in Ephesus, Paul was just a reminding 
Uh, these churches about this hymn. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead. The apostle Paul is saying that the light of Christ that had transformed these believers and brought them out of darkness, it not only brought them out of darkness, but it will bring those whom they come into contact out of darkness. That's how powerful the gospel is. Paul has absolutely no defeatist attitude towards society that surrounds him, and neither should we. Those of you students who are ready to go back to uh, your uh, academic studies here this coming semester. There's nothing to be afraid of regarding some professor or instructor or class of of some other uh, religious or humanistic world. You don't need to be afraid of that. You just need to follow the truth wherever it leads. In fact, you should learn the other perspective so you will know how to respond to it in a way that is full of grace and full of of truth there's nothing to there's no retreating here there's a there's only advancing as we shall see in ephesians chapter 6 when paul talks about the armor of god we're moving forward so now walk walk but now you are children of light walk in the light you do that you do that as you know the difference between darkness and light, you do that because you're grateful that you've been rescued out of darkness into light, and you do that because children of light can make a difference in the lives of others. Well, in a moment, we're going to have communion. But I want to share an article that I found this past week that just really encouraged me. I love it. It's it's a great article. It's titled, The Next Billy Graham Might Be Drunk Right Now. <laughs> Written by a guy named Russ Moore, who said when uh, he was a student, uh, he was uh, talking with other students about just the state of the church, and they were just kind of complaining and This wise professor, uh, Carl Henry, said, I'm not discouraged at all. I love this. He said, the leaders of the next generation might not be coming from the current evangelical establishment. See, we'd like to think that our, you know, our children grow up in the church and this is a great thing and then they grow and then they become leaders and then those leaders become leaders of the movement. And sometimes that happens, but you know what? You know what? It doesn't happen all the time. Henry said, the leaders for the next generation, they're probably still pagans right now. Who knew that Saul of Tarsus was to be the great apostle to the Gentiles? Who knew that God would raise up C.S. Lewis or Charles Colson? They were unbelievers who, who once they were saved by the grace of God became mighty warriors for the faith. And, and then Moore says this, the next Jonathan Edwards might be the man driving in front of you with a Darwin fish bumper decal. The next Charles Wesley might be a misogynist, profanity-spewing hip-hop artist right now. The next Billy Graham might be passed out, cold drunk in a fraternity house right now. The next Charles Spurgeon might be making posters for a gay pride march right now. 
The next Mother Teresa might be managing an abortion clinic right now. The next Martin Luther King Jr. might be a racist, card-carrying member of the KKK right now. But the Spirit of God can turn that around, can't he? Can't he? We're here. You know, while Philip was baptizing the Ethiopian in Acts chapter 8, Saul of Tarsus was murdering. But the Spirit of God turned that around, didn't he? And then Moore wrote, whenever I'm down about American Christianity, I'm reminded that Jesus never promised the triumph of the American church. He promised the triumph of the church. Jesus is king, and his church will flourish, and he'll do it the way he chooses, because that's what emperors do. So relax, okay? Last sentence. And be really kind to that atheist in front of you on the highway, the one who just uh, shot you that obscene gesture. Because he might one day baptize your grandchildren. (laughs) Let's pray.